0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is
1: Emily Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID sessions. So I think I'll go this week. Emily, how was your week? My week? Well, I've got long COVID, so it was up and down. I think I probably say that every week. I have definitely lost that period of wellness that I had through the autumn when I was staying up somehow, feeling quite good. So day to day it's very fluctuating. I definitely feel like I've got a big knock to my nervous system right now. I've got all of the muscle tremors, flickings in my muscles. I've got the tinnitus is really bad and the pulsatile tinnitus. I can feel my blood moving around my body, but it feels like my head is squashed. I'm very dizzy a lot of the time. And then that horrible feeling of anxiety, which is not emotional at all. It is a physical sensation. You start feeling your heart doing something strange. So I have ways of managing my head pain. I have certain drugs that I have found that help with that. I don't really have any medication that helps when I go into this, but I always remember to take cold showers and do my breathing exercises and try and build in my meditation and my yoga. But when I'm really bad, I can't do yoga. Is there anything that you can think of that's triggered it? No. Do You know, I'm not the world's best person at having a wearable or, or fully monitoring the data for which I have been berated but I do monitor my steps and write down my activity and I honestly can't see a pattern likewise with emotional stresses or work patterns cognitive overload there hasn't been a trigger it's just been a demise over the last seven or eight weeks much more variable than it was previously.
0: I think the marked difference between when you were super suffering with long COVID is that It's not days and days of it. It's days of relative bad times, but I don't see you shaking
1: or looking grey as you used to look sometimes when we would would do these shows together. Yeah, and it's definitely lighter. It's definitely lighter and I definitely have more capacity in between. Maybe it's just that we're better at managing it now and knowing when to rest. And I do sleep now, which when I was in the really bad phase, I really did suffer from insomnia. So something is better than it was. Mm. And what about you?
0: I've had, is it a month now that I haven't been on my heart meds? Maybe just over a month where I haven't had to take my beta blockers, which are the things that I use to manage my condition. So you're feeling good? I mean, I'm not feeling good. Oh, that's a stretch, on, <laughs> <No. laughs> Feeling good. I mean, if only? Um <laughs> Um, I'm feeling less shit. (laughs) Marginally less shit (laughs) on the shitness scale. (laughs) I, uh, I did have a really bad period this month in particular. Last month wasn't too bad, but this month it just, for 48 hours, I felt so dreadful that I actually had a nap. And the nap actually was so, it was an hour's sleep on a Saturday afternoon. And I felt absolutely restored by it. And I can never nap. So my body must have been really
1: desperate. But I have been encouraging you to uh, try and work out some strategy for improving your sleep because it it really can take the edge off feeling horrendous. Yeah, but then there's that other thing where you
0: nap and you wake up feeling worse, right? Yeah. I don't have the urge to nap or the need to nap usually during the day, no matter how ill I'm feeling, except for on very rare occasions. And sometimes on those rare occasions, I can literally nap for two minutes. Yeah. But this was an hour's nap and I woke up feeling so much better, but it could have just been because I lost about six pints of blood.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And this, this is a problem. And this is an area that definitely needs research is this blood loss that we've both been experiencing.
0: I'm sure my daughter won't mind me saying this, but after she had COVID and was vaccinated, she noticed her menstrual cycle getting heavier. And she's just started. She's young.
1: And everyone I speak to as well. People who shouldn't be having changes to their menstrual cycle at this phase of their life. Your daughter should not be having No. 35-year-old women. Shouldn't really be going into the perimenopause now. And yet so many friends that I speak to seem to have had massive impact it's, it's just another area that needs so much investigation and so much research and the menstrual cycle and the periods is one of the things that is so often being missed by clinics or doctors and I guess male doctors might not necessarily realize quite the importance of them as a barometer for your health absolutely however not something that is being overlooked by this week's guest, which was quite an exciting interview.
0: Yes, we are, we are quite fangirling after, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> Ikiko Iwasaki is really a long COVID superstar. star. Yeah, she's done so much, hasn't she? And again, like she was just so lovely. We say this after
1: we speak to most people. I told you, we, only, we so only speak lovely. to lovely people. But... I was surprised from the amount of work that she's done and the level of respect that she receives for her work, quite the humility with which she comes at this and the grace that she has when speaking to people like us and explaining her work. Absolutely. She is Professor of Immunobiology at Yale University of Medicine, and she is the Director of the new Yale Centre for Infection and Immunity. You've been researching and publishing on this since the beginning. What were you working on immediately prior to COVID and long COVID?
2: I'm an immunologist, so I study the immune response to a variety of viral infections So before COVID, we were studying many different virus infections. We particularly focus on mucosal surfaces. Mm -hmm. So we study things like herpes simplex virus, uh, Zika virus, and also um, common cold virus, the influenza, anything that enters through the mucus layer. So we were poised to kind of look into the immune responses that are happening in people who are getting COVID uh, right before the pandemic hit us in the U.S., we established a biorepository protocol where we can start recruiting patients and collecting biospecimens. As soon as we had the first patient, we were ready to characterize their immune responses. So we were very fortunate and well-situated.
1: Yeah. And when did you first become aware of the longer-term implications COVID 19 in itself is a huge and fascinating subject, but we're very specifically looking at long COVID. When did it first appear on your radar as some kind of post viral condition that we were going to start seeing in large numbers?
2: So I remember exactly when that happened to me because uh, it was over a phone call with the writer, Ed Young, who was interviewing me for a piece in the Atlantic, where he was asking me about this strange long-term symptoms that some people are suffering from after COVID and whether I had any hypothesis. So on the spot, I came up with a few, and I'm still actually investigating those hypotheses. But it was Ed Young who really uh, kind of mentioned this long COVID, and that's when I started beginning my interest in this, this disease.
1: When was that? The summer of 2020?
2: Yes, May of 2020. At that point, we'd already, especially your
0: discipline, would have figured out and subsequent papers is that what was killing people was not actually the COVID virus, but our own immune systems overreacting to the virus, right? Exactly. Already the immune system plays such a huge role in COVID.
2: That's right.
0: I'm thinking that probably your focus then is to look at the immune system and how it manifests in long COVID. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So our first paper that we published from this biorepository we set up called Impact Yale uh, was indeed looking at the immune responses in acute severe to moderate COVID patients. And there what we saw was that uh, there were two things happening. One was that the virus was being persistent in people who had severe COVID. And along that viral load, the immune response is being engaged in a strange manner. It it wasn't really a typical antiviral immune response we see with other respiratory infections, but we're seeing things that are very unusual come up in our analyses. And we term that misfiring of the immune response because it, it, it was like directed against parasites and fungi and bacteria which are not the appropriate immune response we normally expect for a viral uh, infection. So already in the early summer of 2020, we were seeing unusual activity of the immune response in severe COVID patients. And we published many other papers after that, but essentially we knew already there was some uh, immune component to the disease itself.
1: And you have subsequently further developed various theories, but that inappropriate immune system response, you believe, is one of the things that could be causing the long COVID symptoms.
2: Right. If you want me to run through the four main hypotheses. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, all of them involve the immune system, by the way. The first hypothesis is really the viral persistence. If there is a reservoir of virus that replicates somewhere in the body that we are not clearing, that could cause chronic inflammation and uh, could be contributing to long COVID.
1: And you, you have mentioned in several of your papers, and there's proof elsewhere via biopsies and so forth, that there is that viral reservoir in long COVID. Have you seen cases of long COVID without that viral reservoir from biopsies?
2: The biopsy studies and autopsy studies really indicate that the virus antigen and the RNA can be found in so many different organs, but it's really not focusing on whether that is the cause of long COVID. These are sort of evidence that the virus can be found months after the initial infection in multiple organs. The the key is to link that to whether it's corresponding with symptoms in long COVID patients. And that's something that we want to do, but I don't think we're there yet to make a causal link between viral antigen persistence, and long COVID. Okay, so that's number one. Yeah, exactly. And number two is autoimmunity that's triggered by the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Once autoimmunity is triggered, sometimes you recover from it, but oftentimes it's very hard to shut down self-reactive DNB cells. So that was the second hypothesis. And uh, there is some evidence, for example, a paper by Jim Heath's group that was published last year in Cell indicated that lupus-related autoantibodies are found in patients who then go on to develop long COVID during the acute phase of the infection. So that could be uh, playing a role in some way. That's interesting
0: because our doctor here says that he's found people have got lupus after getting
2: covid yeah, so that is sort of the basis of my thinking at the time when I proposed it, because people who get lupus, the, the demographic kind of matches the long COVID demographics, and and I, I thought that that might be a one possibility. We don't know whether those autoantibodies or T cells are driving the disease itself or it's a biomarker for long COVID, but it, that applies to all the hypotheses. We, we we are we are haven't drawn a causal link yet. But we want to.
1: I quite like your, it feels like a slightly more cautious approach than we've had from some people that we've spoken to, because some people seem to be saying, no, we've seen this, therefore, that's the mechanism. We're fairly convinced that that's the mechanism. You, with all your knowledge, seem to be slightly more cautious about sitting here and saying, this is definitely, this is definitely it.
2: Yeah, well, we are not there yet to definitively say this is it. And I don't think we might get there because long COVID is a blanket term that describes probably multiple different diseases. And so I only talked about two of the hypotheses, but the other two, some people might have a combination of these things and others might have one that's followed by another. Hmm. Uh, Another might have only one of the four. Uh, Or maybe it's a totally different mechanism. So we need to kind of uh, keep an open mind. That's the important thing about science is that you want to test your hypothesis without bias. Yeah. Otherwise, you come to a conclusion that you want to, Mm. which is (laughs) We've come across that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's that rare.
2: And so tell
1: us about hypothesis three.
2: Yeah, hypothesis uh, three is the reactivation of latent viruses. So all of us carry a variety of viruses uh, in our body that are latent, and they're they're really not causing any symptoms or diseases. But when there is an infection or immune suppression or uh, another challenge, stress to the immune system, uh, you can actually have these virus reactivate. And when that happens, they come out of dormancy and replicate, and then infect other cells. And we are seeing evidence for this, uh, for Epstein-Barr virus mm. uh, reactivation in a subset of long COVID patients. So one of the
1: things that Noreen and I have been discussing is if it could be the reactivation of something like ABV, why has everyone not got long COVID given the percentage of people that do carry those viruses dormant in their system?
2: That's a great question. In fact, ninety five percent of adults carry latent EBV, and as I mentioned, you know, most healthy people we we, we have it under control. But uh, what we're seeing is that even uh, four hundred days after the initial infection, people with long COVID uh, have evidence for reactivation of EBV compared to people who recovered fully from COVID, and so that is a significant difference uh, in the population that we're studying and. Again, we don't know whether EBV is driving the disease or whether it's a marker of disease, but it's really about the control of the virus, uh, whether we can control it in latency or uh, something happens to us during the infection that allows this virus to come out of dormancy and become reactivated. Something happens to our immune system. Yeah, these latent viruses are normally controlled by the immune system. Yeah, And when that is lifted in some way, like during acute covid you could have this reactivation. And that Jim Heath paper that I mentioned, EBV, viremia, was one of the four predictive factors during the acute phase of COVID in people who develop long COVID. So um, there, there may be a link there to what we're finding also.
0: Or it could be epiphenomenon, could just be one of those things, right?
2: Exactly. That's why I'm really hesitant to make any causal link. <laughs> It's just one of the things that we're seeing. Yes, exactly. And that applies to all the things that we're studying so far. Yeah. And then the last one, number four. Oh, the last one. Yeah. This is really uh, about tissue dysfunction and damage that's caused during the acute phase of the COVID that it's not properly repaired. So let's say you developed severe scarring in the lung and there's fibrosis. That is very difficult to reverse and you could have a Uh, long-term shortness of breath as a result of it. And and so that's sort of like a tissue damage mediated disease. And we suspect that that may be happening more in people who had severe COVID who were hospitalized and some of them in the ICU. Uh, There's sort of the post-ICU syndrome that can happen to people who are suffering long-term consequences, but that's probably very different from Hmm. people who get mild COVID who then go on to get long COVID.
1: Yeah. And that is something that we've discussed previously, that perhaps there is a different group of, of people who had severe COVID and it is that sort of scarring. But could there also be, we call it macroscopic and microscopic tissue damage from mild cases of COVID? Because we know that quite a lot of mild cases of COVID caused quite severe hypoxia or hypoxemia Mm -hmm. with people who then didn't necessarily go on to be very severely ill but quite a lot of people even just these oximeters suggested that there was a problem with oxygen traveling around the body could that theory of the tissue damage in that scale be body wide without a very severe infection
2: yeah, absolutely. In fact, we published a paper with Michelle Monje's group last year, mm. where we created a situation, an animal model, in which mice are only infected in the lung, because yeah. the ACE2, uh, the viral receptor, is only expressed in the lung of the mice. And these mice get really mild COVID, they don't lose any weight, they don't really change any behavior during the acute phase. And yet we found uh, seven weeks after the infection, there are chronic changes in the brain that happens in these mice. And that is because of the initial trigger, the inflammation that happened in the lung that then traveled to the brain and affected these microglia, which are the macrophages in the brain. And then that activation then led to further consequences. So it's very entirely possible that this tissue damage that we're talking about may have been just an acute transient inflammation in the beginning that then led to a further consequence.
0: Interesting you mentioned the ACE2 because that's what happened to a lot of people with long COVID that it affected areas of the body that has a lot of ACE2 receptors. And for me, it was the heart. I had a very mild COVID as did Emily. We went hospitalized, but I ended up with myocarditis. So this ACE2 factor seems to be really interesting Is it the virus itself or is it the immune system that's causing this dysregulation?
2: Yeah, a very excellent question. Uh, So ACE2 association with organ involvement in long COVID may be because the virus itself can target those organs because of the receptor expression, or it could be immune responses that somehow target those organs and You know, if you develop, for example, antibody against ACE2, that can cause autoimmune inflammation in the organs in which ACE2 is expressed. So those two are possibilities. It could be a bystander activation inflammation. There are lots of possibilities, but we know that this virus can be found in so many different organs. I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually uh, some sort of direct infection that's involved. It's good in a
0: way because ACE2 inhibitors seem to help manage your symptoms.
2: Mm-hmm. which is a yeah. very simple interim while we look for the mechanisms. Exactly. So, so you know, the, the four hypotheses that I mentioned are the root cause hypotheses. But then downstream of that, there may be many secondary pathologies that occur. And that can also be targeted by therapies. For instance, we are finding low levels of cortisol in people with long covid And that is the most significant difference we find in the omics studies that we've done.
1: Yeah. And that's the study that you did with David Petrino last year. And we spoke to David about that. A question that I asked him, and I'm interested to know what you think is, do you believe that the low cortisol levels are due to the long COVID or could be the reason that we got long COVID?
2: Uh, (laughs) Very good question. It's very hard. That's why I'm really um, hesitant to draw arrows between these things. But um, and we're, oh, we're
1: honestly not trying to put you on the yeah. or push you for anything no. on, on any of these questions. We're just fascinated by yeah. your thoughts.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to just emphasize how important this collaboration that we have with David is, because uh, shortly after Ed Young contacted me about his piece on long COVID, I reached out to David because he was also interviewed by Ed Young. And I kept start seeing his name, you know, in newspapers and articles. And when I reached out to him to, to, for collaboration, I didn't know what he was going to say or whether he would ignore me or whatever, but he immediately responded and with a positive response. And that's how the whole thing began. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful to have a colleague like David, uh, who's so compassionate and knowledgeable about patient care. And this is a great partnership that we have. But yeah, going back to your question about the cortisol, it's really interesting because if you had such lower levels of cortisol, that alone is possibly explaining some of the symptoms. Uh, Cortisol is such an important hormone that regulates so many aspects of physiology from heart rate to nutrient handling to uh, motivation to everything. So you could imagine that that level alone could, could contribute to some of the symptoms but it's also possible that because of the long term inflammation uh, that the body has adjusted to having that lower levels of cortisol in some way or we think that because cortisol level is controlled by the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis and the pituitary hormone that controls the cortisol level was abnormally low in these people mm. Normally, that level has to go up in order to compensate for that low-level cortisol. So it could be indicating some kind of a central nervous system defect. And, and so it, it's pointing arrows into many different directions, but we don't know whether it's cause or effect.
1: Yes, this is <laughs> true with so many of these things that we're seeing, isn't it? Well, I oh, love
0: yeah. the story that you reached out to David. Because you wrote <laughs> yes, uh, an article, didn't you, about how important social media is for science? Yes, indeed. And how we can kind of all join together through the voice of social media. Exactly. That's how we follow all the work that's going on.
2: That's quite
1: interesting, isn't it? As a scientist, is is there renewed or is this really collaborative approach? Is that bigger than it was before?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I would have to say that um, my work relies on Twitter. Um the reason for this is because you know, telling <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> but um reason is that I will never be able to reach the audience that I have in on Twitter or on any other platforms. I can't get to know patients, I can't get to know advocacy groups. I probably wouldn't get to know you guys if I wasn't on Twitter. So it's really important. And that's why many of my colleagues actually have quit Twitter because of the recent management changes. But um, I'm still on it because without that, it's difficult for me to reach out to patients and lay public and, and talk about stuff. And
1: actually, that's one of the fascinating things with this is the amount of patient involvement. And the big thing about that social media interaction is you are still publishing the papers in scientific journals but now those scientific journals become accessible to people who have long covid who normally in conditions like this you wouldn't be turning to scientific journals whereas normal people are getting involved in learning about it and then we were talking to patient-led research collaborative and then it's feeding
2: back into your research the the patients are absolutely uh, that's why i say i would no, be nowhere uh, where i am now without that kind of direct patient engagement and learning from the patients because twitter allows that to happen in real time and i i really on a daily basis learning new things about what the patients are experiencing and what's working for them what's not working for them what are some of the side effects i mean i, I could never get that level of um knowledge without uh, such a platform.
0: But you have a, a bit of a history in that, don't you? Because uh, didn't, don't you have some very
2: rare, what is it? It's alpha-gal? Uh, yeah, so uh, I did communicate uh, some, ra- I guess, relatively rare disease, like the alpha-gal syndrome, where um, people develop uh, IgE, which is an antibody that's used during allergic response, against um, the alpha-gal, which is a, a sugar molecule that's found in certain meats mammalian meats like beef and pork unfortunately and before that i was able to eat all kinds of food but now i restrict i cannot eat mammalian meat anymore and that's another tutorial i did on that disease well it's interesting
0: because in long covid as well there people develop a lot of histamine responses or mcas yes mast cell activation is that linked also to the immune system
1: yeah, it is I all of the immune system, isn't
2: it? The whole thing is involved. Yeah, the, the, the immune system is really at the core. Um, and, and, you know, like mast cells are an important um, immune cell that is lives in different organs like the skin, and um, it's activated uh, to trigger certain responses that are beneficial for the host. But in um, mast cell activation syndrome, for example, there is a hyperactivation of these cells and they can release different kinds of hormones and cytokines and and, and induce inflammation. So, uh, yeah, we really cannot understand long COVID without understanding the immune responses behind it. Going back to your four hypotheses,
1: is it fairly likely that all four of those sort of trigger each other and keep going around in a circle? Persistent virus reactivates dormant viruses. It drives an autoimmunity, and then it keeps causing this micro damage, and then it keeps going. Yeah, it keeps doing that.
2: A brilliant idea. In fact, um, David Petrino and I just finished uh, writing a piece for a journal where we talk about this cog idea, where the, these cog wheels that are turning each other around, and maybe they are feeding into each other. Maybe the you know, the persistent virus we know can trigger uh, inflammation, and that could be leading to autoimmunity. It could also be leading to reactivation of latent viruses, and that causes tissue damage. And it could be really turning the the wheels turning uh, each other. Um, And that's why we we think that, you know, they they may not be happening all at once, but could be happening sequentially. Yeah,
1: Noreen's comment about the MCAS just made me think of that as well, because we often talk about getting a virus that the kids have brought home. It's a rhinovirus. And then it triggers the MCAS. And then you end up with another one of your symptoms coming out. So it does feel like Mm. there's a sort of cycle with it. You were quoted in a recent article in, in The Atlantic, which wasn't Ed, saying we don't have any interventions that are known to work. Is that your belief? We don't have any interventions for long COVID yet?
2: Well, what do you think?
1: <laughs> uh, nothing's worked for me. I've still got long COVID.
0: <laughs> we think that we can manage our symptoms. Yeah. But like you said, we don't even know what's causing long COVID, so how
2: can we treat it? Exactly. I think that's Katie Wu's piece. That yeah. yeah. And it's a very important question about preventing long COVID once you have the acute covid mm. which we really don't have a very good grasp of what can help there were like in the early phase of pandemic there were some preprints suggesting that vaccination shortly after the infection can reduce the risk for long covid but uh, i haven't seen it published yet and i don't know like paxlovid for example does it really reduce the risk for long covid when it's taken during the acute phase these are Like really important questions that are relevant today, which I feel like there really isn't a great answer. There is some research suggesting that our T-cells are taking a hit Mm -hmm.
0: quite significantly. Mm. How important do you think that is in long-term prognosis for people with long COVID? Because if our immune systems are continually being affected and we're losing some of our T-cells, like reduced numbers.
2: Yeah, so Um, This is a very um, heated discussion, so I want to um, just take a little time to explain. Please, Um, please, yeah. (laughs) We'd be delighted. (laughs) Thank you. So during the acute severe COVID or even moderate, even mild COVID, we do see some level of T-cell lymphopenia, and that was one of the first things that were reported about this disease, so if you look at the T-cell number in an acutely severely infected person, you will see that number dropped. However, that drop in the T-cell number eventually comes back to normal level. So during the phase of the acute COVID, especially the severe and moderate cases, you might have susceptibility to other infections. And that's what you would expect when you have a lymphopenia. However, at the later phase, when we're talking about long COVID, we are not seeing lymphopenia, meaning that the T-cells and B-cell numbers are similar to healthy people, but there is some level of dysregulation in the immune system. For instance, we are seeing some elevation in exhausted T-cells, and these exhausted T-cells are a feature that is found when there is chronic antigen around, for example, cancer or chronic viral infection. So that's indicating to us that the immune system is fighting something chronically and it is unable to get rid of it. Whether that's the SARS-CoV-2 antigen or EBV or some self-antigen, we don't know what the entity is. We're also seeing some reduction in the circulating levels of these memory cell subset. Again, that's not the same as immunodeficiency, but there's subtle differences that we are seeing in the long COVID patients that's indicating that they're fighting something and that they might have kind of a skewed immune response, but it's not a immunodeficiency in a sense that you have very little T and B cells to fight off other infections. That's a very important distinction between the acute severe COVID versus long COVID, that it, there's no general immunodeficiency happening, but there's a subtle difference that's that we can see. And in fact, those things are contributing to our ability to distinguish people with long COVID and those without okay is that clear
0: that is clear but it's interesting because I had my T cells checked this summer when I was actually my most healthy in the last three years and my CD4 c 8 and my NK cells were considered extremely low level yeah now what I need to do now is have them recheck and see what's going
2: on Right, exactly. And I'm not saying that T cell deficiency doesn't happen in long COVID. Like I said, there are so many subsets.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely.
2: Yeah, we may be missing that subset. So I, I totally believe you and, and you probably had low T cells. It's very important to look at this issue longitudinally to yeah. understand if there is like a up and down that's going on or... You're chronically depleted of these cells.
1: The thing is that Noreen had this checked because of the conversations we have. Your average long COVID sufferer would not have a clue to go and ask someone, let alone who to go and ask, to check those levels. So that could suggest that there are various things that we're not, I mean, we're not being checked for anything here in the UK, really, because there's no tests that say whether or not you've got long COVID, people are quite blasé. I did not get any blood tests when I went to the long COVID clinic. So the long COVID clinics, if they are not gathering data on even necessarily straightforward standard blood work, they're also not gathering anything on T cells, B cells and NK cells. So there's possibly more work that we need to do (laughs) do here.
2: (laughs) It's an understatement. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's really an important point to make because before we were starting to see this low level of cortisol, people weren't even thinking about looking at their cortisol levels. And uh, now that there is some hint to that, I'm hoping that more people are going to be testing for it and seeing if this is a more general phenomenon or maybe it's a subset that we are looking at.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated to know why, when we get COVID, We don't produce a good enough immune response like other viruses that we don't get it again, where if I got measles, I didn't get it again. Why is
2: it that we don't do that with COVID? The reasons are complex, but one of the key reasons is that there are variants of concern that evade your immune responses. So you may not be getting the same variants of concern, likely not, you're probably getting the newer version. And then after that, another newer version, which escapes the immune responses that you've already built. And so that is why the reinfection is so common, because the variants just escape the existing immune responses. Basically,
1: your body doesn't recognize it the next time you catch it as being the same thing. So it doesn't have that inbuilt immune response.
2: Yeah, well, it doesn't mean that the immune response is completely naive because uh, there is a lot of T cells, for example, that can detect the the variants just as well as the the original virus. Um, Because T cell epitopes are these linear peptides that are parts of the proteins There are many, many of those epitopes, and no variants of concern have evaded all of them. That's just very difficult for the virus to do. So you still have the T-cell response that can mount significant protection against disease. But with respect to infection, uh, mild cases of infection, it's difficult to prevent because of the variants that are evading the antibody responses. So
0: more and more people could be getting milder and milder versions, but still develop long covid
2: Exactly. That That's the, the issue is it appears that even the Omicron variants are leading to significant percentage of the infected people are leading to long COVID. So um, the mildness is not equal to no long COVID.
1: And is there sometimes something in that mildness that means our body is not actually producing a sufficiently strong immune response to completely going back to the possible idea of viral persistence, to to properly kick that virus out.
2: That is exactly what we're seeing, Emily, um, is that people who, with long COVID, uh, appear to develop some level of antibody responses against the spike. And it's actually that level of antibodies are actually higher than the convalescent control group who recovered from COVID. But those antibodies are not very functional in clearing the virus or neutralizing the virus. So there is this sort of inability to mount a robust clearing immune responses that then ultimately leads to long COVID. And that's the key insights we're gaining from all these studies. That's probably what's leading to persistence and chronic inflammation and so on.
1: So do you think that was something that was in us before?
2: Yeah, that's really hard to tell. Why? <laughs> is it our fault. No, no, no. Nobody's fault. It's the virus's fault. (laughs) But uh, it is very uh, interesting to understand why is it that some people develop this kind of immune responses that are not able to clear completely the virus versus other people who develop robust and clearing immune responses that are able to get rid of most of the infectious virus. So are we looking at if you
0: have COVID and we develop a really good antiviral to help us clear the virus, we won't get long COVID. But if you do develop long COVID, the antiviral is not going to help because then we're in this cogwheel yeah.
1: where that antiviral is not going to
2: push our immune system enough to clear it. I don't know about that. Antiviral uh, is targeting the virus itself. And so if you can remove that source of the problem, the immune response is no longer going to be activated, right? So unless mm-hmm. you're dealing with EBV, which is not, right? That's it's a different. That's fine. We need to understand <laughs> <laughs> what part of the cog we need to target, right? Yeah, you no, know, that's so important. Absolutely, because of that first cog, which is the persistent virus, we are going to start a Paxilvid trial uh, to see if anyone gets a benefit out of that and. The Paxlovid is targeting the viral protease so it has to it can only work if there's a replicating virus around. But uh knowing that the replication is likely a smoldering kind of replication, it's not rapidly replicating throughout the body, we think that 5-day course of Paxlovid is likely not going to be sufficient. We're going to do a 15-day course for Paxlovid to see if anyone benefits. And we're going to collect blood uh, before, during, and after to see what immunological features correspond with benefit from Paxlovid. That way we can enroll more people for Paxlovid treatment in the future for a biomarker responsiveness.
1: responsiveness. Oh, that's excellent. And that's something that you've already started putting in place, is it? You've already got the funding for that trial.
2: Yeah, we are putting the last pieces together. And this is a work that we're doing with Dr. Harlan Krumholtz who is my other partner in the clinical uh, understanding of long COVID. So that's hopefully going to happen soon. uh, But we do have the clinicaltrial.gov page if you're interested in looking at that.
1: Definitely. We'll link that on the website as well.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: We've spoken to a lot of HIV specialists. Mm -hmm. There's this overlap, right? Where if it's a persistent virus and then you have drugs that will then dampen down or stop, Replication, you can then lead a very normal life. I wonder if that's
2: where we're going to end up. I don't know, but uh, yeah, we need to test and find out if if anyone benefits. For the case of HIV, it's very clear that it's a it's a latent virus by design, and mm-hmm. uh, whereas SARS-CoV two is wasn't expected to be this kind of chronic infection, and yet we're seeing evidence. So it'd be very interesting to see, like, how long do we need to treat to get the benefit? And then does everybody benefit? Or if you're past that stage in the COG, do you now have to target autoimmunity instead or uh, EBV or something else? So possibly
0: looking at immune-directed therapies down the road, like IL-6
2: inhibitors? and That's correct. I mean, that's the other target that we could... So so if the COG, the original wheel is really the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, Targeting that is the root root cause of the disease, right? That would be great if it works, but that's not where we stop, right? We, we have to target each of these wheels. And for instance, if the autoimmunity wheel is that's turning right now, you can target it with anti-inflammatory or even lymphocyte targeted therapies or things that are being used uh, to treat autoimmune diseases could also be tested in the clinical trials.
1: Yeah, we've got quite a lot of um, trials that we're going to be needing. Yes.
0: <laughs> so you you've got a listen study going on at the moment.
2: Yes. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? I'd love to talk to you about the Yale Listen Study, which is the one that I started with Dr. Krumholtz. This study is currently uh, recruiting people to sign up to do two things. One is to share with us the symptom survey so that we can understand better who's suffering from what symptoms. And then we're going to be recruiting in the second phase, a biospecimen collection and deep immune profiling. So we can analyze what immune features are associated with each of the symptoms. And we're recruiting people with long COVID and also vaccine adverse events. People are suffering sort of long haul like symptom after uh, getting vaccines. And that's another arm of the Yale study. And then I tweeted a few days ago: uh, "We need control. <laughs> we need people who don't, who don't have long people."
1: <laughs> and you're looking for people anywhere in the US, excluding Hawaii and Alaska, is that right?
2: That's correct for the biospecimen, but anyone can sign up and share the symptom survey um, anywhere in the world. So, you know, I'm encouraging people to do that as well. Fantastic! You're one of the first, I think, to look at
0: vaccine-induced. Symptomology.
2: Yeah, exactly. This is a very tricky thing to discuss. Mm. I am a definitely a pro-vaccine Pro person. <laughs> studying All vaccine, and many people who suffer vaccine adverse events are indeed pro-vaccine people. We shouldn't be ignoring the people who are suffering from post-vaccine issues just because it's difficult to talk about it. Uh, it's it's a real thing that's happening in, in people who are suffering. Uh, some of them very debilitating symptoms. So it's definitely a real thing. As
1: we mentioned quite regularly, I'm not a doctor or a scientist. But one thing that I'm interested to know your opinion on is I'm not convinced that anyone has had adverse vaccine effects without previously having had COVID. Have you seen cases of people who genuinely, genuinely have never had a COVID infection, can prove they have never had a COVID infection and have had an adverse reaction to the vaccine? Because my belief is fundamentally that there's still been that hit from the COVID initially.
2: Yeah, that's a very important question. And and it's very difficult to prove complete absence of uh, exposure to the virus, right? Because you could have had a mild infection that you didn't know about um, that's why we're doing a deep immune profiling, meaning that we're looking for antibody against the other viral proteins that couldn't be elicited by the vaccine itself, just to understand whether this vaccine adverse event is truly happening in people who've never been exposed to the virus. But I do think that there are these people who are, have never been infected, as, as far as they know, that do develop these quite uh, debilitating symptoms of mm-hmm. vaccination. And we don't even know what the percentage is. We're, we're not really counting these people. We're not really studying them at all. And so we want to at least start chipping away at what is happening in their immune responses and how related is this to long COVID? Is the spike protein driving both diseases? There's a lot of interesting biological insights we can gain from that.
1: It's so fascinating because, honestly, person to person that you speak to, some people have had such a positive result from taking the vaccine with that long COVID. It's really, really helped some people that it hasn't. We should still encourage vaccination, but it is an area that requires so much research because of there being so many variables with it the type of vaccine that you took when you took the vaccine, whether you had the vaccine before or after you had COVID.
0: And how many you should have as well, because our own physicians are now saying, because we've got long COVID, mine is anyway, saying don't have any more vaccines. I've had three and he's actually advised me against
2: having any more. Is it because of the worry of um, adverse reaction to it or? Well, I had all three Pfizer the
0: first two I was absolutely fine the third one I had a huge 12 week flare of my long covid okay yeah that's understandable and actually the cardiologist said the same thing he said I wish you called me before you had the vaccine I would have advised you against it so I'm wondering what they're hearing it must be it's all anecdotal obviously but maybe other patients have went through it Emily yeah. you haven't had even the booster
1: I, I've only had two vaccines because I had such bad reactions to both of my first. I, the the first vaccine I had was worse than the COVID. I was in bed for two weeks. I was so sick from from that first vaccine, and so I have also been advised not to have another vaccine. But then this is the thing because now we have a different vaccine and that is something that we should discuss with you. Now we have this bivalent vaccine, which is slightly different. Perhaps that wouldn't have the same effect on my immune system perhaps if this is some kind of autoimmune issue, perhaps it would. But one thing that we must discuss with you is your mucosal vaccine development, because that is something that we talked to Ziad Ali about last week. And he, he was talking about the real need for us to look at mucosal vaccines. And you have been doing some work on it.
2: Yes, we have. As I mentioned before COVID, we were really focused on mucosal infections and vaccine strategies. So we applied some of our existing knowledge to make a vaccine called Prime and Spike. Mm. The Prime is essentially any vaccines that are conventionally available, intramuscular. But we do a booster nasal vaccine where we just use the spike protein without any adjuvants and in saline. And that seemed to work really well in the animal models. And we licensed this technology to a company called Xanadu Bio. Uh, I'm a co-founder of that company, and we're trying to raise funds to be able to do a phase one clinical trial. But that's been difficult to raise enough money to make GMP quality material for human clinical use it does cost a lot of money to make a vaccine. And the market is not great. And we're trying very hard, but we're not there yet.
1: Has there also been fall off in terms of funding for that, because people think, well, the pandemic's over now?
2: Exactly. There is no warp speed effort anywhere. And people are getting tired of hearing about COVID and hearing about vaccines. So Uh, There may be less appetite for these things right now, but it's so important to prevent infection in the nose to prevent long COVID because current vaccines, even though they have some effect in reducing the risk for long COVID, it's not perfect. Whereas nasal vaccines, we believe because we're going to stop the virus at the first site of uh, entry, we can prevent uh, further consequences like long COVID. Like you said in that article that Emily
0: was mentioning, there's no long COVID without COVID. (laughs) Exactly.
2: It's the virus. We just need to target the virus as soon as it comes into our body. And that's where the mucosal immunity is so important. And can you just explain
1: very briefly the way that that works? It actually draws the antibodies towards where the virus is entering. Is that right? Is that why you do it via the tissue?
2: Exactly. So it's it's pretty amazing that the, this mucosal surfaces, like the gastrointestinal, respiratory, genital, these places have its own immune responses, uh, immune system called the mucosal immune system. And with a conventional vaccine injected into the muscle, you don't develop this mucosal immunity. But if you locally stimulate the immune response using a nasal spray, then you develop immune responses in the nose that allows the antibody to go into the lumen of the nose. So it's the mucus layer itself that now contains the antibody against the virus. And that can capture the virus before it even enters our body. So that's why like putting the guard outside the door of your house versus putting the guard inside of the hallway, right? That's the difference we're talking
1: about. So sensible, like out instead of letting it in and then trying to push it out.
2: Exactly. Don't our children already get nasal vaccines every year anyway for the flu? That's right. The flu mist is the only available nasal vaccine right now. And it's great in younger children. But like all things, we develop antibodies against the vaccine itself and the effectiveness gets lower and lower as we grow older and older. And that's why like our vaccine strategy circumvents that issue, because we are not using a viral vector. We're just using the spike protein itself. So uh, I don't think uh, the ability of the antibody to block the vaccine efficacy is as great as if we were using a vector vaccine.
0: Do you think it would be beneficial then for some people, because I've been reading recently that to have the other type of vaccine, not the mRNA one. Like the AstraZeneca or the no- is it Novavax that's coming
2: out soon? Mm-hmm. Novavax is a protein-based vaccine. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's very little study done on the potential adverse reaction to these other types of vaccines. There were some patient surveys that were done earlier in the pandemic that showed that the adenoviral vector vaccine and mRNA vaccines had similar impact on the long covid patients some felt better some felt nothing some felt worse but for the novavax we don't have any data so it's really difficult for me to you know <laughs> suggest <laughs> or that's what happens yeah. yeah can i ask you one last question before you go yeah
0: yeah what is it that you think that you don't know we don't know so much
2: There are so many questions that are unanswered about long COVID. We're just scratching the surface of this disease. And so that's why it's dangerous to come to a conclusion at this stage because we know so little, but it doesn't mean that we aren't looking. We're looking very hard. Many people are like, so I'm obsessed about trying to understand this disease and many scientists are. So hopefully we'll chip away at this disease more and more. But we need to be open-minded and humble about what's going on because there's so little we understand yet. And doing this sort of placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials will teach us about this disease, uh, in addition to finding biomarkers that correspond with responsiveness. But these things cost millions of dollars to run. And you really need to find funding source, sponsor, it's it's not an easy thing to do. That's why I feel like there should be a global coordinated response to do these randomized clinical trials, so we can coordinate the efforts throughout the globe. Well, that's what the WHO is for. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we very much appreciate you and the hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists who are. People seem to be working crazily hard on this and. We really do have the utmost respect for you doing that.
2: Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. But really, I mean, without the patients and their voices, it's impossible to do this research. So we thank you. Oh, uh, What was nice in the
0: interview is that although everything that she talked to us about, we kind of already know.
1: Because we've read her papers. Because we've
0: read her papers, right? And they've been cited and backed up by other doctors and researchers. So we're really familiar with what she's saying, but then we're talking to the source. And that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and she also had a very human way of explaining it and uh, distilling what must be incredibly complex research. She made it very comprehensible for, for us and hopefully for our audience. After the interview... she's tweeted out that one
0: of her colleagues on her team has got long COVID. And so it's kind of very real now, I feel almost, for her because she doesn't have long COVID and was not working with anyone that had long COVID. And now it's just coming home, you know, that actually someone on her team's got it. Yeah. She's very out there on social media saying, you
1: know, I've actually got somebody on my team who's got long COVID and it's really sad and as she said in the interview. And so many of the people that we've spoken to who either have it or have people that they're working with or living with that have long COVID. It's that lived experience, how much that feeds into the research. Join us next week as we hear others experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.